All right. Well, good evening, or good evening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medina East. If you're a newer guest, as uh, DJ said, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for joining us today. As you can see from behind me, too, the, we are uh, kicking off a new series this weekend. And in order to explain a little bit of why we're doing this series and how we got here, I actually need to take us back first and uh, share a little bit of the journey. And so uh, if you guys go all the way back to the Easter service, so all the way back to this past Easter, this is one of the things that uh, Pastor Tony said at our Easter service. He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then following him is a sham. But if he did, that means everything Jesus ever said about himself, about life, about the afterlife, about everything is validated. If Jesus rose from the dead, we need to rethink everything. If Jesus rose from the dead, we need to take his words not casually, but seriously. And so because we believe the resurrection to be true, after Easter, we decided to go back and to investigate and relook at one of Jesus' most famous teachings known as the Sermon on the Mount. And again, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we actually spent six months doing that. And over the course of the past six months, there were two major themes that I was reminded of personally kind of over the course of that series, and it was this. It's that the words that Jesus said, that they were both beautiful and they were challenging. And so on the one hand, as you kind of look, just overlook at the Sermon on the Mount, it's undeniable that the words that Jesus says and the picture he paints for us, it's, it's beautiful, right? When you listen to the to Jesus describe the way that we were designed to live and interact with each other. When you think about a world without murder and anger, a world without lust and adultery, a world without revenge, a world where people will keep their oaths, right? It's, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. It is an attractive picture of humanity. But at the same time, it's also incredibly challenging, right? Because that beautiful picture that he paints for us, well, well that requires me to actually live that way too, Right? It requires me to not get angry and me to not lost and me to not take revenge. It requires me to be poor in spirit and not self-reliant. It requires me to be meek and not proud. And so at the same time, on the one hand, I am drawn in by the beauty of Jesus' words. I am also, I'm also overwhelmed by them because the task at hand, it, it can seem just impossible at times. And I know from talking to a lot of you guys that many of you, you feel the same way, right? The Sermon on the Mount, it, it just has this way of creating this tension inside of us. And this part of us that says, I want that life. I long to live this life that Jesus has called me to. Like, I just, I, I want to be more like Jesus. And yet at the same time, there's another part of us that kind of pulls us in a different direction. There's another part of us that, uh, if we're honest, we, we still kind of like our sin, and there's another part of us that every time we want to change, it wars against that part of us that doesn't want to change. And so the Sermon on the Mount, I, I think it leaves us with this question. It leaves us with the question, well, how in the world am I supposed to actually do that? Right? How am I supposed to go from the place where I'm currently at, how am I supposed to move myself to the place that God actually wants me to be, Right? And the good news is, right, the God that we follow, he's a God of grace. He is merciful with us. He's patient with us. He knows that we're not perfect. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't want to just save us from the consequences of our eternal sin. He wants to save us from our actual sin too. In the Sermon on the Mount, it shows us how Jesus actually wants us to live right now. 
And God's perfect design for humanity, it doesn't change because uh, we think it's a hard standard to live up to, right? God doesn't lower that standard because we find his teaching difficult. And so again, we're left in the the same question. All right, God, that's great. How in the world am I supposed to do that? Well, as you open up the Bible, one of the, the things that we find is that the Apostle Paul, he actually struggled with the same things we do, right? That he felt the same way that many of us do as well. So if you guys have a Bible with you, I want you guys to open it to, to Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat back in front of you. We're going to be on page 916, and we say this all the time, but if you're new and you don't own a Bible, and you, just, uh, you can take that Bible home with you and just consider that a gift from us. Now, as you guys have turned there, one thing I do want to say is normally we tend to camp out in one passage, so normally we would be spending our whole time together in Romans 7. We're actually going to be all over the map today. So uh, we're going to start here, and this is going to really frame our discussion, but then we're going to go a lot of places, and so all the verses that we're going to talk through, they're all going to come up on the screen, so don't feel like the pressure to, to just flip through and uh, get to all of them on your own. They'll all be up here, and you guys can um, see them as, there as well. So, But Romans 7, this kind of frames where we're going. Uh, so check out what Paul says, and starting in verse 14, he says this. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Right, you you gotta love Paul's honesty, right? This is the the author of over half of the New Testament just declaring to the world, guys, I, I still struggle with stuff. Right? I, I don't always get this right. I have this, this inner tension that I work through and wrestle with all the time. Right? And so on the one hand, Paul can say, for I, desire, for I have the desire to do what is good. And he could say, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Right? I long to live this life that God's called me to. And at the same time, he can say, but I cannot carry it out. But I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind, right? So he longs to do this thing, but he's got this battle and he has this inner tension that he's working through. So what is Paul's solution to this? How does Paul answer this this inner tension that he raises in Romans 7? Paul actually has two answers to it. And the first one comes out in the very next verse. So we end in verse 24, and the next verse says this. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right, so his first answer, it's the gospel. It's the cross. It's the good news that Jesus came to save him from his sin. 
But as I mentioned earlier, God doesn't just want to save us from the eternal consequences of our sin. He also wants to save us from the reality of our sin in the here and now. So how does he do that? Well, that's where Paul's second answer comes in. And his second answer comes in Romans chapter 8, which is all about the Holy Spirit, right? It's all about how the Holy Spirit and the presence and the power of the Spirit in our lives, which actually gives us the ability to make the changes we long to make and to live the life that God has called us to live. And so all of this brings us back to our new series called Powerless to Change, which is going to be a study of Romans chapter 8. We're going to walk through all the way through Romans 8 and figure out right, what does it actually mean to do life and live life through the Spirit. So that's where we're headed. And so uh, over the course of our, our job today is to really just introduce to you the Holy Spirit. We're going to do an introduction to that. And then over the course of the next five weeks, Pastor Tony is going to lead us through a series where he just walks us through Romans chapter 8. And so that's where we're headed. And so for today, as we start to wrap our brain around the Holy Spirit, we actually need to start with an even more complicated concept that theologians and people who study the Bible like to call the Trinity, right? And so if you're new to this word, uh, Trinity simply means tri-unity, right? It's the idea of three things being united in one. And this word Trinity, it's not actually a word you will find in your Bible. It's not in there. It's simply a word that theologians and people who study the Bible use to describe three other teachings, a collection of three teachings that are clearly found in the Bible. So here are the three teachings. It's the idea that there is one God, that God is three persons, and that each person is fully God. It's the idea that God is three in one. Again, trinity, tri-unity. Now let me just start by, by, by saying this. Let me just state the obvious. This doesn't really make sense to us, right? When you look at this, this is one of the most complicated and complex things that you will find in the scriptures. It is so hard for us to wrap our brain around this. And I think this is one of those places where just like the, the infinite grandeur of God, it just doesn't really fit inside the finite human brains that we have. Right? Just by the nature of who God is and his, his just grandness, his infinite nature, not everything about that is going to cleanly and nicely fit in our little brains. And I don't mean that as an insult, it's just the reality of who God is. And yet, this is exactly what we find taught in the Bible. So let me show you guys a couple places uh, where we see this taught. So we'll start with this one. So there is one God. Isaiah 45, 5 says this. It says, I am the Lord, and there is no other apart from me there is no God. Pretty clear. Here's another one. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so geographically speaking, the Israelites, and as a nation, they would have been surrounded by a bunch of polytheistic nations, nations around them who believed in many gods. And so because of their surroundings and just the world around them, 
One of the things that you will find throughout the Old Testament is God is consistently trying to drill into them this truth. There are not many gods. There is only one God. This second passage here is known as the Shema. It would have been something that the Israelites would have recited over and over and over on a daily basis. Maybe like some of you guys grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Like they would have had this memorized. They would have said this over and over. Parents would have trained their children in this. Again, thinking like, don't listen to the world around you. There are not many gods. There is only one God. And therefore, he is the one who is worthy of all of your worship. Right? And so as you can clearly see from these passages, the Bible teaches that there is, there's one God. And yet, the Bible also teaches that that God exists in three persons. Again, does not fit into our brain. That is not as cleanly as we would like it to be, uh, but that's what we see. Now, there's a bunch of passages that we could look at to explain this one, but for the sake of time, I'm going to show you what I believe to be both the, the most important and the clearest of all of those passages, and that actually comes in Matthew 3 at Jesus' baptism. So Matthew 3, we read this. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, the reason this one is so important is because historically, there have been groups of people who have tried to explain away the Trinity and say, well, it's not really three persons, it's just one God who's wearing like a different hat at different times. And so, depending on the situation, he just shows up in the form of a different one. So, in this one, he shows up as Jesus, but over here, he shows up as the Spirit. But the problem with that line of thinking is you run into a passage like this where, where all three of them are there at the same time, right? And so in this passage, you see Jesus is in the water being baptized. The Spirit of God is descending on him, and the Father is speaking from heaven, right? And so all three are present and actively doing something at the exact same time. And so the Bible clearly teaches that God is one, but it also teaches that God is three. Here's the third part. It teaches that each person is fully God. And each person is fully God. Now, the Father's the easy one. This is kind of the assumed, uh, just, this is the assumption throughout all of Scripture, right? The moment you open your Bible and you read in Genesis 1 that the Father, the God, is just speaking the creation into existence, it's pretty obvious the Bible thinks that the Father is God, right? And this is just a theme that you can trace all throughout the Old and New Testaments. You can see this from the fact that Jesus prays to the Father, that people ask the Father for forgiveness of sins, which is something that only God can do. And so that's kind of the assumption throughout the Bible. So I'm actually going to move on pretty quickly from that one so that we can get to some of the others. Um, but the second one, the Bible also teaches that Jesus, the Son, is also fully God. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Titus 2.13 says this. It says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Who's our God and Savior? It's Jesus. Pretty straightforward. Here's another one. This is Jesus himself. John 10, he says this. He says, I and the Father are one, which is him claiming to be God. Now, some people read that and say, but ah, did he really say he was God there? Well, let's keep on reading. He says again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. 
For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And so again, whether you agree with this or not, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus, Jesus is also fully God. Which brings us to the third, right? To the idea that the Holy Spirit is also fully God. Now the clearest place that I think that we can see this comes in Acts chapter five. Uh, It's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. So Acts five says this, it says, then Peter said to Ananias, how is it? that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Right, and so Peter is speaking and he says, uh, he says that they have lied to the Holy Spirit And then at the end, he said, you didn't just lie to anybody. You just lied to God, right? Peter makes a very clear distinction that the Holy Spirit is God. Another place I think that we see this is uh, the Great Commission. So Matthew 28 says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, at first glance, you might say, "But, but it doesn't actually... Does that actually say that the Holy Spirit's God? To which I would say, well, you have to ask yourself the question, if the Father is fully God and the Son is fully God, well, what else can you rightly finish this sentence with? Right? What else rightly belongs there? Because if you took the Holy Spirit out and you replaced it with something else, I think this becomes a little more obvious. Right? And so uh, we're doing a baptism at the next service, and so let's say... Someone was up here and we were baptizing them and we said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of Pastor Seth. Right? Seth's a good guy, godly guy. Some of you guys are old enough to remember the old Sesame Street game. One of these things is not like the other. Right? One of these things does not belong. Right? It's pretty obvious when you put something else there, you're like, yeah, you know what? That just doesn't fit. And you could put Mother Teresa in there, or you could put one of the apostles, you could put Paul or James or Peter, you could put anything else in there. The only thing that rightly fits in that sentence is God. And so again, there are definitely a bunch of other places we could turn to to make this point, but I I think you guys get it, right? The Bible also clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is fully God. And so if we return to our original question, right, the goal of today is to introduce the Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? The starting point is the truth that the Holy Spirit is fully God, right? He's fully God. The Spirit is not less than the Father. The Spirit is not less than the Son. The Spirit is not the little brother or the weird uncle or the backup quarterback or, right, fill in the blank. It's not anything else in your mind that is somehow lower than the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is fully God in every way. Gotta start there. And if that's the starting point, the second thing I think we need to know is this, is that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. So I think for many of us, it's fairly easy to think about the Father and the Son in terms of 
a person that we can like relate to and interact with. But for whatever reason, when it comes to the spirit, like mentally, we just have a hard time putting him in that category. And he's just like in this, this other category. And I think we tend to treat him as some kind of like impersonal, like mystical force. It's this thing that's like, I don't know quite what to, what to do with it. And it's out there somewhere. Right? I think we struggle with that. Now, most of us, we probably wouldn't say it this directly, but I think that our language and the way we talk about the spirit, I think it actually reveals this to us. And so uh, common things I hear people say that we've all said is, well, how do you get it? Can you lose it? What does it mean to be filled with it? Which is fine if you're talking about an inanimate object, but that doesn't really work if you're talking about a person. So let me give you guys a couple examples. So if you were, uh, if you were single and you wanted to date someone and you thought, all right, it's, this is the moment I'm going to make my move and you went up to them and you said, I would like to date it. You know what's going to happen? You are not going to date it. It is going to reject you and probably go find somebody else, right? That's not going to go well. How about this one, right? If, uh, let's say that I'm at home, my wife comes back, and I've been watching the kids, and after a few minutes, she just looks around, she says, like, hey, hey, where's Harper at? I said, I don't know. Lost it, right? No, that's a bad answer for a lot of reasons, right? Um, but in the same way, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a person. And this is exactly how the Bible talks about him. 1 Corinthians 12 says this. It says, all these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. How about this, John 14. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Right, a lot of he's in there, not a lot of it's, because he is a person. Another reason we know the spirit is a person is because the Bible describes him as someone with a mind and a will and emotions. First Corinthians 12, we just looked at that. It ends with just as he determines, right? The spirit can determine things, which assumes he has a mind and a will. Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The passage we looked at earlier, Acts 5, says that you can lie to the Holy Spirit. Here's the deal. You can't lie to gravity. You can't grieve electricity, right? Those are forces. Those are things you can only do to a person. And the reason I think this matters so much is not because I care about your grammar, but because how you view the spirit as either a person or a force, it drastically changes the way that you interact with him. This changes whether you see him as someone you can relate to and rely on, or if you just see him as a power to somehow be acquired. Right? There's a drastic difference between the two. And so the Holy Spirit is fully God. The Holy Spirit is a person that can be known and related to. And here's the third thing that most people want to know. All right, so how, how do I receive the Holy Spirit? Right, the Bible has this language of receiving the Spirit. What, what's that all about? How does that work? Well, let's check out a couple passages. Let's see what the Bible says. Acts 2 
Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says this, it says, and you, were also in, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the day of redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So how do you receive the Spirit? Well, both of these passages, they point to conversion. They point to a defining moment when a believer puts, when someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And one of the things that happens in that moment is that the, that new believer will receive the Holy Spirit. The idea that the Holy Spirit actually comes and lives inside of us, which I understand if you're outside of the faith, if you're new to this, that sounds weird. It's just, it's just kind of the way that it is. Now, most of the application of all of the truths that we just looked at, right? most of the application, all of that's going to come in the weeks to come as we actually work our way through Romans chapter 8. But there are a few core foundational things that we absolutely need to get straight before we can move into any of the things that we're going to talk about in the rest of this series. The first one, I think it's simply this. It, it's... Do you believe this? Right? Do you actually believe this? Because one of the things that I was surprised to find is that there are a lot of believers who actually don't. As I was getting ready for this teaching uh, today, I had someone who, who knew what I was going to be talking about. They, they came across an article and they sent it to me. And it was a survey that Barna put out this past year uh, that, that learned this. It said some 62% of self-identified born-again Christians contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. 62%. You know how these surveys work, right? Like they're anonymous surveys. You don't put your name on it. So there's no like peer pressure. You're not forced into saying something. And so people who of their own free will said, I would like to identify myself as a born again, right? What was the language? As a born again Christian. They even know like some of the like insider language. They're identifying themselves this way. They would say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I'm a born again Christian, but the whole Holy Spirit thing, ah, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Here's why I think this matters so much. Because if you remember back to what Paul said in Romans 7, he said this. He said, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot, I cannot carry it out. Paul said, this life that God has called me to, he said, I can't do it on my own. He said, it's not possible. This is why in uh, John 16, Jesus told disciples it was actually better for him to leave, which at first the disciples were like, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus said this, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the spirit, will not come to you. Right in that moment, in that moment Jesus knew exactly what his disciples needed most. He knew they needed the spirit if they were gonna have any chance at actually living out this life that God had called them to. 
And according to Barna, over half the people they surveyed who are trying to follow Jesus are doing so without actually believing in the only one who can give them the ability to do it. The starting point has to be, do you actually believe this stuff to be true? We gotta start there. But as I thought about this, I also realized, but it, it, it can't stop there. It has to actually go beyond intellectual belief because the reality is you can believe these things to be true about the spirit and not actually be a Christian. If you were to, I don't know what world this is happening in, but if I were to give the devil a theology test uh, and to say, well, who is this the Holy Spirit fully God? Is he a person? Does he help believers? The devil would say, yeah, 100%. All of those things are absolutely true. So the reality is you can believe these things to be true and it cannot affect you at all. And so I think one of the questions that we're gonna have to ask ourselves throughout this series is not, is the spirit, is he the helper? I think the question that you have to ask yourself is, is he your helper? Right, is he someone that you look to? Is he someone you lean on? Is he someone you are actively walking with? Because according to Paul, if you do, then change is absolutely possible. But if you don't, if the Spirit's just like kind of the part of the Trinity that you don't think about and you neglect and you push off to the side, then I'm not sure if it is. I'm going to invite the band back up, and they're going to close us out with some songs, but I kind of want to just close by, by, by saying this. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we are so excited that you're here. We know that obviously if you're, if you're in the room or if you're watching online, you are at least open to the idea of Jesus and the possibility of following him. And I've known people uh, who might be in a similar place and they, they, they come to church every week and uh, they're like, ah, it's kind of nice. I get to hear a moral teaching and I, I leave and I, I try and make some changes and feel a little bit better about, about where I'm at. And if that's where you're at, man, we're gonna keep loving you and you can do that for the rest of time and you can come here. We will love you like crazy. We're glad you're here. But we also love, wanna love you enough to tell you that, man, God has so much more for you than just that that the, the life that God has called you to, that he has invited you into, it's not about trying to get like 1% better morally and how hard can I try and I just gotta, like it, it doesn't actually work that way. If you want the fullness of everything that God has for you, there's gonna have to come a point where you actually choose in and you invite the spirit into your life to empower you to do and to live out all of the things that God's called you to. If you have questions about any of that, man, I would love to talk to you after service. We'll have people up in the corner who would love to pray with you, uh, but we're excited. Uh, we just would love to have you guys stick with us and stay with us on this journey, and I'm excited for the next five weeks as we get to learn through this stuff together. So if you guys will join me, let me pray for us, and then again, the battle band to lead us out. Father, thank you so much that you do give us your spirit. Um, God, we are incredibly grateful that we do not have to do this on our own uh, because we know that we can't. 
So God, I ask that personally you'd forgive me for the moments when I, when I neglect your spirit, when I uh, forget about him, when I push him to the side, when I lean too much on my own skills and abilities. God, thank you for your grace with us. Please help us understand you to your fullness, all of you, more and more and more. And then God, would you send your spirit into our lives in increasing ways so that we can live out the life you've called us to. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.